All right, so today we're in lecture six. Lecture six, do you need, do you have six? You need lecture six, and uh, you guys miss five? I'm missing this five, four. If you want to listen to the lecture, the recording's on uh, Sermon Audio. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is a friend of mine who is a, an acquaintance of mine who I do listen to his sermons at night when I do want to go to sleep because he has a he has a very straight voice and it just lulls you right to sleep. And uh, I don't know how he does it <laughs> with the congregation every week after week. Maybe why you just talk about the first part of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, technically, we don't talk at all anymore because I'm a, I'm a, I'm an apostate. And uh, for maybe for actually about, about for about four reasons. <laughs> Let's pray together, and then we'll look at this uh, this section. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Help our time to be profitable and beneficial and edifying. We pray this in Jesus' most glorious and wonderful name. Amen. All right, so this is a uh, section lecture six. We're talking about grace and new creation, the freeness of salvation and justification. Now. <clears throat> The last uh, sentence of section 10, F, its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. Those get their own, their whole own article. We'll turn to uh, section 13, repentance and faith have their own, have their own section. Uh, the reason for that is because John Newton Brown, who wrote the New Hampshire Confession, which our confession is a derivative of that. Uh, almost all confessions we use today are all derivatives of ones from the past. Uh, they go all the way back to the earliest one in Lumpkin is um, the Schleitheim Confession from 1527. And it kind of tracks them through history and the, the various adjustments people make. Um, so John Newton Brown, three times in the confession, he put language in there that said that regeneration precedes faith. He did it three times. And the reason he did that was because um, the New Hampshire Confession and our confession is a compromise confession. It's a confession that was written to keep opposing factions together. And uh, really, it's, a, it's because of this word right here, election. In the early, in the late 1700s, a guy named Benjamin Randall uh, was, a, was a Baptist before before eighteen before the eighteen hundreds, all Baptists in America subscribed to the Philadelphia Baptist Confession. And this we call it I disres I disres I disrespectfully call it the Philly of seventeen forty two. But all Baptists subscribed to that. Uh, all the associations in America used used that confession of faith, which was an Americanized form of the London Confession of sixteen eighty nine which was the second edition of the first London Confession from 1644. So there's a, there's a tradition coming down through the through time. Randall grows up in churches that are devoted to the Philadelphia uh, Confession of Faith. Its statement on its statement on things like election is very bold. And I'll, I'll, this is from the 1689. I should I have a Philadelphia in there. Should I? I bet it's right here.
You guys ever heard of Orthodox Baptists? Down in Oklahoma, there's a couple of Orthodox Baptist churches. Well, I don't know. They they were very very legalistic at the time. Um, yeah, well, just legalistic in a different way. There's different kind. There's there's like a separation legalism. You know, a rid, the rigid lifestyle. I call it the Baptist Amish. You have that that group, and then you have those who are theologically legalistic, where they're very narrow, and uh, they're they're so narrow that they're the only ones going to be in the Bride of Christ. The Baptist Briders, they just get narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower until nobody's going. Till talking to them, you think nobody's going to heaven but them, but they don't really believe that when you really push them to the carpet on it. They're very like Campbellites. Campbellites, the Church of Christ, thinks they're the only people going to heaven. Mm. That kind of thing. So my mother was conservative. She's a Seventh Day Baptist. Yes. Now there's a Seventh Day Baptist. There's a rich tradition of that in in Britain. And uh, Samuel Stinnett, uh, who wrote the song "Immortal Honors," not that one. Uh, he wrote some hymns. He was a he was a Seventh Day Baptist, and they worshipped on Saturdays, because for them. They rightly interpret the scripture, and they saw that the Sabbath is Saturday. It never becomes Sunday. It never, ever becomes Sunday. And the reason why we worship on Sunday is because that's the Lord's Day. The Sabbath is connected to, to the law. We're in the New Covenant, so we worship on Sunday, as Christians have. Now, our, now our confession will say things like about the Christian Sabbath, which is it's a bad use of terms. Anyway, I can't find that. Uh... So the Philadelphia Confession of Faith says that, that from eternity, God chose a certain number of people to be elect, and that Jesus came and died for only those people, and nobody else has a shot. And so Benjamin Raymond grows up in that kind of environment. Now, what happens with Calvinistic preachers, and all preachers, if you're a free will preacher, you always emphasize free will to the max. If you're a Calvinistic preacher, you often go all the way to election to the max. My dad, one well, of my dad's good buddies, uh, who was a Calvinist, he said... When I preach on the sovereignty of God, I preach like there is no human responsibility. And when I preach on human responsibility, I preach like there is no divine sovereignty or no election. And that's exactly how you'll hear me preach. Because <laughs> when I'm preaching one, it's this. It's hard, it's hard to it's hard to balance. My dad would say that's that's lopsided, you shouldn't do that. And uh, he's probably right. But that's just the way it is. When you're in a text that's about human responsibility, I mean you press it. For all that text is worth. And when you're in a passage talking about divine sovereignty, you have to press that too. You press it for all it's worth. Because there is, there is comfort in both, in both extremes. There's comfort in both extremes. So, Randall, uh, he doesn't like this. He grows up in this, becomes a minister. He gets ticked off because of the way Calvinistic preachers were preaching. And he starts what's called the Free Will Baptist. And I don't know if they have any of those in Michigan. But they're all down to the south. They'll run to Free Will Baptist. And so you'll have like, First Free Will Baptist Church or Faith Free Will always have free will in the sign, which means they believe they don't believe in election of any kind. They, it also means they believe you can lose your salvation. They don't believe in eternal security. So that's and so Randall in the early 1800s in the New Hampshire Association, he decides he starts preaching his new doctrine. Which, which is not really a new doctrine because there were already Baptists in England that believed the same thing, general Baptists. 
he starts preaching and uh, it, it's very popular. It's popular because it's new, it's innovative. It's popular with people who already have a bad taste in their mouth about Calvinism or election. And so it becomes very popular. Now, Randall actually becomes a cult leader and he he's like the pastor of a hundred churches, like the bishop of a hundred churches. It's a very, very interesting time in history, but they all stayed in the same association, the New Hampshire Association, which was bigger than New Hampshire. It was all of all of the Connecticut, New Hampshire. Uh, what's one of those other little states up there? Rhode Island. Rhode, Rhode Island, Rhode Island was Rhode Island wasn't part of it. Vermont, that's the one I stick it up. And then Massachusetts, that region right there becomes the center of of the New Hampshire Association. So the association is about to split because by eighteen. 20 there are about 200 churches in that association uh, about 120 of them are free will baptist the 80 the 80 left are the the five pointers and so the association when you get that kind of lopsided the association is about to split because if baptists believe anything the one thing they do tend to believe always is the majority rules <laughs> and so they start to see the associations is it's either going to split there's going to be two associations, or uh, it's going to split two associations, or they have to figure out a way to exist together. Enters three guys, three Baptist preachers. Their names are kind of lost to history, but I have them written down in a, <laughs> in a book in there. But these three guys are asked to write a confession of faith that will make the free will Baptist happy and that will make the Calvinistic Baptist happy to keep them together. And so they have a compromise document. And so that's why when you, when you read our Confession of Faith, if you put on your Calvinistic glasses, you can see Calvinistic themes throughout. If you put on your uh, your free will, no. I'm going to say the word Arminian, just so everybody is kind of a, as a recognizable term. If you put on your Arminian glasses, you can see Arminian emphasis in it. Now, I do not mean to say... I'm not trying to put that on people that if you're not a Calvinist, that you're an Arminian. I'm not saying that. I don't want to put a tag on somebody that they don't want to wear themselves. If you don't believe you're an Arminian, then you don't, you're not an Arminian. But if you are an Arminian, you want to go by that, that's fine. I don't want to label you as something that you don't agree with, right? Uh, I don't want to be labeled with Reformed because I'm not Reformed. I believe in Calvinism is the true teaching of soteriology, but I don't follow the reformed tradition i don't i don't have i don't have i like the reformed view on many things but i'm not i don't i'm not a reformed i'm not a reformed baptist let's say it that way although i get called that uh, so to keep these two groups together you have this document that depending on what you're looking for so like me and my brother one time had this conversation my brother uh i don't know if he's a calvinist or not but I, he, he might be he's probably closer than he used to be but we had the same confession in our churches. <laughs> and I would say, look at all the Calvinism in your church's confession. He'd be like, there ain't none in there anywhere. There is no Calvinism. I'd say, yeah, look. And I would, I would show it to him. He'd like, no, it's not. And he, but what's the difference? The, interpret, the interpreter. He was interpreting everything through the lens of free will. And I was interpreting things through the lens of divine sovereignty. Now, it's not only the confession that you read, you read that way. You also read scripture that way. You read scripture through your own preconceived, uh, what are they called, suppositions. You bring your understanding of God to scripture. It's very hard to get rid of those presuppositions. It's very, 
very hard. Sometimes you'll hear, well, a natural reading of Scripture takes you to this conclusion. What's a natural reading of Scripture? So then you have to get into grammatical, contextual, historical stuff and interpretation into the actual text itself of what the words mean, how the words are structured. But it's very hard to not to not interpret according to your system. It's very, very hard. The only person who does it well that I know of is me. Right. Yes. Yes. Thank you for bringing me back to the to the original point. So, because Brown, because Brown is a Calvinist, charged with writing a. Now he's he's the final editor. He's not the original drafter. He's the final editor. The 1833, 1853, all the work of John Newton Brown. And he's a very very intelligent man. He he ran a college in uh, uh, Hamilton College in New, in New Hampshire. In the confession, he says, "Okay, we don't have to have a clear statement about the extent of the atonement." because the Bible kind of reads both ways. We're not going to put something in there about God did from eternity elect a certain number. We're not going to talk about that. But we are going to maintain and keep in there regeneration before faith. I mean, you talk to a lot of people who are Calvinistic. They Almost everybody says that's the one thing you can't give up. Regeneration has to precede faith. And so he puts it in there, inserts it in there. So you, you, so you, you see it. It's easy. He also wrote a little paper when he was at, uh, uh, he submitted it to Southern Seminary. It's called Remind Me of My Heavenly Birth. And it's about regeneration before faith. Not much is known about him. There's a small biography about him. Brown, but interest, interesting guy. One of the little known Side notes in church history. So let's look at section 10. Grace and the new creation. We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be born again. That the new birth is a new creation in Christ Jesus. That it is instantaneous and not a process. That in the new birth, the one dead in trespasses and sins is made a partaker of the divine nature and receives eternal life. The free gift of God. That the new creation is brought in a manner. Uh, I think it might be a word missing there is brought about in a manner above our comprehension, not by culture, not by character, nor by the will of man, but wholly and solely by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth, so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel. And that its proper evidences appears in the fruit, holy fruits of repentance, faith, and, and newness of life. So the new birth causes salvation. It brings to us the new things that are required to be saved. Because in order to be saved, you have to understand two things. You have to understand yourself and God. And to ch has to change your view of both. Your view of God has to be changed, and your view of self has to be changed. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. As you look through Scripture, you'll see in the Old Testament, you'll see God repenting. Like in Genesis chapter 6, where God sees the world is all corrupt. In Noah's day, and it repents the Lord. Now, in the authorized version, it says, It repented the Lord that he made man. It grieves him at his heart. You see God changing his mind. Now, if you really think about the way scripture reads, God changing his mind, if you get into the attributes of God, 
that's really a fun thing to think about because because I am the Lord, I change. <laughs> so how do we how do we understand him changing his mind? This this is a thing this is really a, that's a fun thing to think about. So you see God so you see this idea of changing the mind and repentance. And there's two kinds of repentance they say. One is uh, uh just regular repentance or um, moral repentance where you change your mind about something you feel bad for something you did. You know, you punch your brother in the mouth, you get a spanking. How do you feel when it's all over? I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> you have, you're repentant. Or you get caught speeding and now you're repentant. That's moral repentance. And then there's evangelical repentance. And that's repentance unto life, repentance unto faith. And so in the Old Testament, you have uh, examples of that. The one that's controversial, believe it or not, is Nineveh in Jonah's day. Not all, not all Christian pastors believe that Nineveh, when they turned, when they heard Jonah's message, his five-word sermon, when they turned, not everybody believes that was evangelical repentance. Some people believe that was only moral repentance. They were just worried about getting destroyed by God. So that's a controversial example. Another example of somebody who is has moral repentance is King Saul. King Saul gets put on the carpet all the time, and he feels sorry about it. He repents. Now, was Saul a Christian or not? This is this is a most of the name brand preachers today say King Saul was not a Christian. Was not a Christian because he keeps turning away from God, always turning away, always turning away, always turning away. That he has no character. He doesn't have the same spiritual character that David has. Where David, when he gets called on the carpet for his sins, what does David do? He repents. And the interesting thing about David is he doesn't tend to commit the same sin twice. Once he has to suffer for one sin, he stops. I mean, he might take it with a new one, just like the people I know and love. <laughs> but he does. It's, it's an evangelical, evangelical versus moral. And so sometimes in a Christian church, you'll have people come in and, uh, you know, they'll really be having a bad time in their life. And they're looking for some help, looking for some guidance. And they'll come to church, and they'll go through a religious experience, they'll, they'll turn over a new leaf. But it's not always evangelical. It's not always salvific. They just, you know, they, my dad had a guy who went to our church when I was a kid. His name was Donald. And every time him and his old lady got in a fight, he was at church. And she'd make, and he'd make his way to the altar. My dad would meet him down there, and he would, I can still see him standing in his brown suit coat. And they were talking to my dad. He's a little guy. My dad's a giant guy. He's talking to my dad. My dad's, you know, giving him the business. And then he'd be gone for six or eight weeks. And then he'd come back, you know, and you could see he had a big old uh, Ford F-250 four-wheel drive, the old square body style. It was a really, really sharp-looking truck. Like we were, we Back then, we always stood on the front porch of the church because we had the churches had porches. And you always stood there and watched people pull up, <laughs> you know, watch, walk the gauntlet <laughs> down the sidewalk, shake everybody's hands. And uh, so, but... Because he came every time he came, he came to get saved. Every time, because he's like, "This will fix it," you know. So that kind of, that kind of thing. So repent, repentance is a, a change of mind about yourself and a change of mind about God. Only God can give us evangelical repentance. Now it says in our confession, the new birth is a new creation in Christ Jesus. Something big is taking place here. Uh, the the reference for that is B. That's Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that's in the, the King James. The NIV says, the, NIV says, the new has come. The new has come. <coughs> and 
And then C, it's instantaneous and not a process. Now, the new birth is instantaneous in that when God gives you life, you get life instantaneously. The understanding or the realization that you've been born again is not always instantaneous because you do not know exactly what's taking place. The longer you are a Christian, in my experience, my own experience and, and talking with other people, the longer you are a Christian, the harder it is to put your finger on the very moment when you were converted. Because you look back across your life and how many times have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? How many times have you done it? I would venture to say you've done it over and over and over and over. It's, the, it's constant. It's unending. You're constantly putting your faith in Christ. And so when I was a kid growing up, they would say, you got to know the date and the time. Or the place and the time. You have a date you can go back to. Remember that church you sing in Sunday? In church on Sunday? It was on a Sunday when the Lord saved me. And and everybody who would wave their hand if you were saying, it was on a Monday. And they <laughs> wave their hand. If, if their day was Monday, and they would just go through the whole church, you know, and you're... The only time you're allowed to wave your hand in a Baptist church, you know? <laughs> and they would just sing through the church that way. But, you know, you're going to get to somebody who doesn't know the date or the time. Pastor Keener at my church in Oklahoma, who pastored there before me, he said he hated that idea of, you know, date and the time. He would say, if you were to ask me when I was born again, I would say it was probably in my 12th year of life. <laughs> I think it was in about the fall of the year because our church always had a revival in the fall of the year. And I think that he was very, he said, I really am not sure because he didn't, he said, I didn't dwell on it. He was, uh, yeah, I think Brother King was 80, 80 odd when he died in 2013. So he was born well, way, way back there. I guess he was probably, he probably fought in Korea. He was in the Korean War. So he probably was born 1930, about 1930. You know, they didn't have, they didn't have. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Old age is relative. <laughs> yep. I, yeah, his fifties looking a lot younger to me every day. <laughs> and so, Keener said we didn't have we didn't have calendars. We weren't writing stuff down. He was a, he was a poor kid from Eastern Oklahoma. He said, so I don't really I don't know the date. And he said, but I, he said and he said and people's memories fade over time, and you can, they can't remember things. And so he said, it's not that you know the day or the time it's that where is your faith now where's your faith in this moment if your faith is in christ jesus as the source of all your righteousness this is salvation this is we're justified by faith and it's something that you can't really fixate on now that was a useful event evangelistic tool in its day to get decisions because if you'd say if you're here today you don't know the day the date that you were saved if you don't know the date you were saved, you need to you need to, you need to get a date. And why not make that date today? Today it's March. No, it's April first, two thousand two thousand twenty-two. Why not make today the date? Your faith in Christ now. Heads bowed, eyes closed, and looking around. Would you pray with me, dear Lord? I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Now lift your hands if you prayed that prayer. You meant with all your heart. I see the hand. I see the hand. Now you all have the date. It's a useful evangelistic tool.
it's something it's a it's a way to do it now is it is it wrong to do it that way i'm not going to do it that way <laughs> i'm not going to do it that way but you have to but it is a way it was done and there are a lot of people who look back to days just like that in moments when they were buttonholed or put on the spot or they made a, a, a profession of faith and the lord saved them they, they believe and you you know this this is where you get into a lot of the methodology stuff but basically it's where is the, the new birth you have to kind of go through the understanding scripture uses this this jesus uses this picture of a birth and so when valerie <laughs> became pregnant she didn't know the very second it happened she found out later how much later well you know like probably six or eight weeks when she thinks her body, something's happened inside of her body. Things are not going like they used to go. Something's different. And then there's the wondering. And then she feels the little, the little flutter, the life in her womb. And then she comes and she says, Terry, <laughs> I'm pregnant. I think I'm pregnant. And then you go get the test, you know, and then, oh yeah, we're pregnant. But you don't know. It takes time. Then that child is is really alive, and it, and the child is not even cognizant of his own existence. He doesn't know he's alive. And they go through all the stages of self awareness, of self realization, understanding. And in, in the new birth, you're initially struck with truth. That's what it says here. In connection with divine truth, the gospel has to be preached to people. The gospel has to be preached. This is a this is a big debate in the circles from where I came was if the gospel had to be preached in order for there to be regeneration. Romans 1.16 says the power of God, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. People are not running around there in the world regenerate who've never heard the gospel. They have to hear the gospel. That's why we send missionaries. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 28, go to, go therefore to all the world and preach the gospel to who? Every single creature. And if the long reading of Mark 16 is supposed to be in the Bible, it says, go you therefore and preach the gospel. To all nations. So the new birth is something that's taking place. Now the reason why our statement says it is instantaneous and not a process is a response to liberalism. Because liberalism said that you mature into Christianity. You mature into the point of salvation. That's why we talk to some people from mainline denominations, apostate, liberal denominations, and you say, are you going to go to heaven when you die? They will say, I hope so. Or I don't know for sure. Nobody can know because they've been influenced by this idea that they're living in progressive faith. And eventually, this is going to happen. This is something they're going to create themselves. Harry Emerson Fosdick is a source of this. Carl Barth, people like this. The liberals. So this statement is in there to say that the new birth is caused by God. It's not something you're going to, you grow into as you mature in your Christian life to eventually be saved. This is saying it's something that happens by the Lord. And says that a person, so there's your condition, you're dead in trespasses and sins, and through the new birth you're made, these are interesting words, made a partaker of the divine nature. Let's look at that reading. That's 1 Peter uh, I don't know where this marked on. Yeah, 1 Peter 1.4 1 I guess it's second. That'd be second Peter, yeah. 
Does it say second Peter? I just missed. Yeah, I just misread it. So it was Roman numerals. Second Peter one four. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This partaker of the divine nature, the Holy Spirit has moved in, into you, and you partake in that. And this is often called alien righteousness, something outside of us coming in, something that's not native to us. And so it has to come from God in the new birth. And then it says the new birth, this new creation, is not uh, brought about by, uh, by comprehension. It's something divine, something that causes you to understand it. Uh, remember Paul said it's through the, foolish, through the foolishness of preaching that, that God chose them, that God chose to save people. And so when you think about the foolishness of preaching, it's not that and preachers sometimes will say, well, because I can act a fool. <laughs> you know, gonna be, I can be foolish, and that's how people are going to be safe. But it's the method. It's the method, the foolishness of preaching. Because if you're going to change somebody's mind normally, what do you want to enter into? Dialogue, debate, conversation. But in preaching, it is not that way. Because in preaching, if somebody hears your sermon and they don't like it, then we kick you out. <laughs> 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 so, so it is. It is. It is not. It, it's not. It's not the normal give and take. It's a declaration of truth. It's the believe it or else. It's a strong. It's a. It's a. And, and the, the whole idea behind the words used to make the word preach or preacher, the whole word, is that a minister is a herald of the king. And he's come with a proclamation from the king. And it's not a proclamation with which you're allowed to argue or debate. You hear it. And you either go by what the king says or you're toast. That's the bottom line. And this is, this is the most ineffective way of getting things done in the world system. You want to enter into conversations and reason with people. But in preaching, it's, it's, it's something, something big takes place here. I'm thinking about giving a sermon. I may do it Sunday. Cause I don't want because I can't decide what Romans six means on something. <laughs> so I thought about giving a sermon on Sunday. You know, like five or six reasons why going to church is really important is because in the preaching of God's word, the declaration of divine truth, there's something transcendent, transcendent. There's something supernatural. There's something special about being with God's people in a house of worship and hearing the gospel preached, hearing God's word taught. Something that's more powerful and more potent than any other medium, even listening to sermons on tape. Lloyd-Jones did not want to have his sermons recorded. He's, he was against it 100%. He's, you, your, your tapes and your recorded sermons, you know. He was against them. His church recorded them against his will, and I'm glad they did because I've listened to hundreds and hundreds of them. But he was against it because he said only in the, in the worship service and preaching, only then. Is there the thunder and lightning from the mountain of God? Only then. So it's something big. Boom, something takes place. Now, not everybody who is saved gets saved in church, but at some point along the path, they came in contact with somebody who declared the truth to them. Most Christians, most Christians come to faith because they went to church somewhere and heard a sermon. That's the majority thing. And then on the minority side are personal witnessing 
and um, tracks and reading books and that kind of thing. Most people are converted through preaching. So this big bomb that goes off does something to us. It secures our voluntary, look at the reading there, so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel. Now this is an interesting word, obedience to the gospel. This is not really, you don't hear Baptists say this too much, but if you go to the Church of Christ, they will talk about obeying the gospel. Have you obeyed the gospel? Something they'll say. And when they when they say that, what they mean is have you repented, believed, and been baptized for the remission of your sins in order to receive remission of sins of your sins? To them, that's obey the gospel. But obey the gospel really is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this reading from Romans. Romans 10. Romans 10, 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not heard believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring good tidings of good things. But they have not all, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, this preached word, and in, in accordance with God's power, in a manner beyond our, above our comprehension, it causes people to voluntarily believe, to voluntarily believe. And this voluntary obedience to the gospel, not something you want to do. God's word uses these great pictures. He says, uh, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you shall be what? filled <laughs> and then in the new testament the spirit and the bride say the spirit and the bride say come and whosoever is a thirst let him come freely to the what the water of life remember jesus with the woman in john 4 the lady at the well he says if you knew who you're talking to you'd ask of me and i would give to you living water you'll never thirst again she said lord evermore give me this water Something has been triggered. This is what divine, this is what this is, this preaching. It causes you to want something you didn't want before. Now, I've talked about this before, but you know, when I was a kid going to church, I didn't, I didn't care two licks about any of it. Sunday after Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. What's the thing before church? Sunday school. VBS. <laughs> VBS. All. Camp meetings, revival meetings, all this rotten stuff I had to go to all the time. <laughs> you know, I never went, I only went to VBS like twice my whole life. My, my dad, <laughs> this will be four. <laughs> so, on Sunday, I'm in church and something happens. All of a sudden, the message I did not want to hear now was interesting to me. And ever since then, you know, now I'm, I'm preaching. If you had said to me when I was 14 years old, when I was 15 years old, or when I was 16 years old, that you're going to be a preacher, I would have popped you in the nose. I didn't, because people say, you're going to be a preacher like your dad when you grow up? Man, I always just, just rank on my hide. I'm like, no, I ain't going to do that. 
And I'll tell you this funny story. Once my dad preached on the only rock and roll station in town when I was a kid, teenager, WNOY. And um, he preached on there every, every Sunday. And so a lot of my friends this week were here a message from Pastor Terry Basham. And when your son has your exact same name, <laughs> Terry Basham, I would go to work. Are you going to give us a sermon today, today, Terry? I would jump up on the counter in the back in the warehouse, the Walmart store. I would jump up there and I would give a sermon, mocking, you know. Because I could do it. I've been in church. I knew all the things to say. But then, you know, I didn't care about it at all. But then the Lord saved me. And I wanted to be saved. I'd been in churches where they tried to force you to the altar. In fact, one time I was in a service and the pastor, the evangelist came. And this is, uh, I guess I was 13 or so. I had to be, I had to be 14. The evangelist came and he, the church is there. And he was a guy who got decisions. He was a decision getter. And so, man, he was flinging it down. And he got down the end. And, and my dad, you know, the church was basically mostly saved people. Because, my, you know, my dad was a gospel preacher. and you know, they were, But I had decided. The first night he was there, he said, if you're here tonight, you know, for sure you're going to heaven you die, put your hand up. So everybody put your hand up. And I always put my hand up because I didn't want to, I knew what the next question was going to be. If you're here today and you're not sure you're a Christian, put your hand up. And I wasn't going to raise my hand because I wanted to. I didn't want to. Be, I didn't want to get targeted, right? So the first, the first time, uh, I raised my hand, and then you know I thought nobody's looking around except for him, and he can't tell who, where who I am. So I'm, I didn't raise my hand at all. And I said I'm never. I decided right there. I'm never raising my hand in this in this in a church again to say that I'm a Christian because I'm not. I'm not going to lie, you know. I'm, I'm not a Christian. They can't do anything to me. <laughs> and so, uh, end of the week, I did put my hand up all week long. And I was really feeling the, the strength of my, <laughs> of my convictions. The last night, he has everybody stand. He's only had like one person made a profession all week long. The last night, he's like, he said, all right, let's just have, I want to know when you, when you became a Christian. Somebody tell me when you became a Christian. Let's start right here with you, Jim. And so Jim says, you know, whatever date, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and they either said the date or how old they was or something like that. All the way through, I can see it coming. Ding, 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 ding. Gets right to me. And he says, well, that's you, son. And I said, in my Southern Illinois draw, I ain't saved. And the whole crowd goes, <gasps> to do he felt he shrunk down to that tall so he wasn't counting on that right right he shrunk down to that tall son you need to put your faith in christ while you can eyes closed never looking around well i'm standing there and i'm thinking my mother's sitting right over here my dad's up here on the on the platform what am i gonna do I stepped out in the aisle, went down there, and he met me at the at the thing, and he's like, he said, you know what to do? I said, yeah. And so I mumbled my way through a sinner's prayer, got up, went back to my seat just as lost as I was when I started out. But unbeknownst to, unbeknownst to me, after service, my dad twisted that guy's tail into a big purple knot because he was so angry that he did that. And I wish my dad had just stopped him at head time and said, we don't do that here. There was kind of a sense of decorum, you know, but uh, anyway. So, that, so that's where the 
I, I wasn't concerned about it at all. I didn't want any part of it. I just want to look stupid. I don't want to, I don't want to hear my mom crying, <laughs> you know, at the house, you know, or be up all night with my parents begging me to do something I don't want to do. Anyway, so, you know, manipulation can be bad. And my, and we, well, manipulation, can't, it's not just can be bad. <laughs> manipulation is bad. And so, um, all that to say, all that to say that um, one day in a manner beyond my comprehension, all that stuff became important to me. And I wanted Christ, I put my faith in Christ. I wanted to put my faith in Christ. I wanted to be saved. I wanted to be cleansed. And the Lord's been cleansing me ever since. And since that time, I've put my faith in the Lord a lot of times. A lot of times. Every, and it sounds like every day you're trusting yourself to him. He's your savior today. He's your savior on your worst day, on your best day. He's your savior. So that's the new creation. Now we get to section 11, the freeness of salvation. The freeness of salvation. Now I put up here, freeness or election. Freeness or election. <clears throat> we believe in God's electing grace that the blessings of salvation are made free to all through the gospel. That is the immediate duty of all to accept it by a cordial, penitent, obedient faith. And that nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own inherent depravity and voluntary rejection of the gospel. Which rejection involved him in aggravated condemnation. So here's back to those Calvinist glasses. When a Calvinist sees the word elect, he can go, ah, they got election in there. Everybody else sees elect and goes, why in the heck is that in there? What's the point of this election? There's, all, there's different views of election. Now, what I think is interesting, you can see the compromise here. It says we believe in God's electing grace. Now, election is distinguishing. It's particular. It's the opposite of universal without exception. It's, it's, the, it's distinguishing grace. But that these blessings are made free to all through the gospel. These, these terms seem to be contradictory to me. We believe in God's electing, distinguishing grace. The God has chosen from eternity those whom he would save. But then salvation is free to everybody. So if you're saying election, let's use these words is some right because it has to mean some it can't mean all there's no way it can mean all it has to mean some mm -hmm. then you have but, but it's free and then the gospel is free to all all is greek it's pass which is every so doesn't that seem contradictory we believe in god's electing grace but the gospel, which is a grace, is free to all. It's it's it. That's where you get into the the, the compromise stuff, compromise stuff. Now, on Monday, I said to somebody, I said, "How can these things both be true?" And somebody said, "Well, they are. They are. You know, it is free. It is for everybody. That's true in one sense." To quote one of my dad's friends, Bill Canoy, he said, "Election is true." God has chosen this is important to understand this is past tense 
God's not choosing now. He's chosen. In eternity, before the world was made, He chose. He chose. But this this whole idea right here, election, this is what my dad's friend says. It's God's business, not yours or mine. It's God's business. It's not our job to go around hunting up the elect. We don't walk up to somebody on the street and say, excuse me, excuse, excuse me, sir, are you elect? What do you mean? That's, that's not our job. We're to preach the gospel to all creatures. Spurgeon said, if the elect had yellow stripes on their backs, I would give myself to lifting shirt tails instead of preaching the gospel. So you want to, election is God's business. God has elected. Why he elected some people, why didn't he elect other people, is completely his business. This is a true thing. This is for, this truth in advertising. I'm a five-point Calvinist. I believe all five points are true without, without equivocation. They're all, I think they're all true. I think it's what scripture teaches. I don't think Calvinism is Calvin's system. I think it's this New Testament system. I think it's what I think that's the right teaching of soteriology. The election is true, but we don't give ourselves to figure out who is elect or why people are elect. It's one of those truths you just have to accept. This is true. J.R. Packery's books, Sovereign, uh, Evangelism, Sovereignty, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says, this is the first step in evangelism. You have to accept that this is true. There's nothing you can do about it. Like it or not, it's just something you have to live with. But that does that should not squelch our evangelism. We must soldier forward in preaching the gospel to every creature. Now, the reality of it is, is does a belief in election squelch evangelism? Every time. Every time. But and it shouldn't. It shouldn't. But you know what? I've been I've been a I've been a pastor long enough to know that people who don't believe in election, they're not very evangelistic either. Because like you could go down here, it's just the most the most uh, non-Calvinistic church in town. Whatever it's just whatever that church is. If you go over there to that congregation and say, "Hey, Saturday we're going to get together and pass out tracks." To every door, we're going to knock on every door in Sheboygan and give tracts and talk to you about the gospel. This Saturday, y'all come. You know how many people are going to show up? Very few. But they don't believe in election. They believe that, that, you, that you have to do your part and they have to do their part. They don't believe in that. I've been trying to get Baptists to be soul winners <laughs> for 20 years. And it doesn't matter if they're a Calvinist or an Arminian. They... They're, it's hard to get them motivated. It's hard to get them motivated to do it. There's all these reasons why I'm afraid, fear, people want to think ill of me. I don't want to. I don't want to cause problems. It's just. It's. It's the same thing. It's all. It's all the same. So your doctrinal view, it doesn't make you not evangelistic, but it does contribute to it. Um, but it seems to answer why. Why Now, Bob, Bob is exactly right because this this was the this this was the early arguments in Britain against evangelism, against sending missionaries. I think it's 
Frederick Home Castle is from Roman town, which is a, a call to mm-hmm. evangelism. So you have to you have to follow the scripture. Mm-hmm. Now there's you're right, and there's and of course there's reasons why these guys are not wanting to evangelize. They say it's going to get done without without God's. It's going to get done. Why try? Because the people are elect. If a person is elect, they're gonna they're gonna get to heaven. If a person is elect, they're gonna get to heaven, no matter what. Now, what's required to get that person to heaven? What's required to, for a person to be saved? One one thing before they got to hear it, so they can accept it. So if they're elected to salvation, God's gonna get somebody that to preach the gospel to them. So that's and that that's a true thing. Now this this thing, why try? Let's let's press to the other side of this, of this. If there is no election, if it's all up to us to get people saved, I want you to justify it. If, if people are dying, like so many people are minute are dying. What's the number? Like twelve or ten, a second or something like that. One hundred eighty thousand people a day die. If there's no elections, all up to us to get the word out. If people are dying every second, how do you justify going to sleep at night? How do you justify having a job that demands 50, 60 hours of your time? How can you go fishing? How can you go out there and fish in a boat while people are dying and going to hell? How can you how can you waste time in college or school? How dare you? People are going to hell. You're letting them go there. There's blood on your hands. You got a hobby. You got stamps. You collect stamps. You were going to hell. You see, the other side of this is if it's all on us, well, it's just, it just, it's just, the burden is massive. It's massive. It's how dare we watch six hours of TV every night <laughs> when the world's going to hell. So. And this is actually the argument that was used on me to, to, to help me change my view of election. Was because I was I was saying it's all up to us. We have to get the gospel out. The election can't be true, and God can't have chosen anybody. And the person I was talking to, a, a Baptist preacher, he said, "Terry, he said if that's true, then we were in the McDonald's. He said, why don't you stand up? It was lunchtime, a bunch of people. He said if all these people are going to hell around us." He said, then you need to stand up right now in this restaurant and start preaching the gospel to all of them. Because they're going to go to hell if you don't tell them. If you don't tell them. And I stared at him. And I was struck with the, the consistency of my argument. If it is all up to me, how can I rest? How can I justify resting? J. Frank Norris, now listen, I want to say J. Frank Norris. That is, this is not an endorsement of J. Frank Norris. It's not because if you Google him, you'll find all kinds of weird stuff about him. This is not an endorsement. Norris was very evangelistic, pastor of the largest church in Fort Worth, Texas, and the largest church in Detroit at the same time in the 40s. He went by train, actually being the 30s, actually. For 12 years, he pastored both churches. He was in Fort Worth on one Sunday, Detroit the next Sunday, back and forth. Temple Baptist in Detroit, First Baptist Fort Worth. Norris is a big-time evangelist. He's a Sunday school organizer, very evangelist, sent missionaries around the world from his church. 
He said, you, you have to do what you can and then put 10, 10 toes towards heaven and let the world go to hell for 10 hours and trust, trust the Lord with it. So this is where we're, you, you, we, we trust in divine sovereignty. We trust in God to work these things out. We have, election, is, election is kind of a relief to us. We do our part. We do the best we can and trust the Lord to do the right thing. So like, I have five kids. And I want them all to go to heaven, right? I want them all to be saved. So you do all the things you can. You tell them the Bible stories. You, you talk to them about their soul. You do all the things you can. But then while you're trying to evangelize your kids, what's the other thing you're doing to them? You're annoying, their, <laughs> you're annoying the fire out of them. Because they're seeing you get mad and lose your temper, break something. I think you guys ever do that. <laughs> they, see, they see you in all your worst. You know, and so it's, 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 you have to trust the Lord. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. Except the, except the, except the Lord keeps the house, the watchman watch the thing. So you, you have to trust the Lord. So election, um, Lloyd Sprinkle, now with the Lord. Lloyd said, he's, he said, don't make providence your Bible. Providence being God's will and way in the world. Don't make it your Bible. Make it your bed. Rest in it. <laughs> make it your bed. You rest. You rest in God's purposes because they're they're true. So election election is a true thing. Now, our business is not to worry about who is or who isn't elect. Ours is to preach the gospel. One of the uh, most annoying things about churches is churches will spend a lot of money and a lot of effort to send the gospel to China, but do a very small, very small missionary work locally. Remember Acts 1.8, you shall be witnessing to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the othermost parts of the earth. The old missionary slogan is, the light that shines the furthest the light that shines the furthest shines the brightest at home. You know, Sheboygan is our is our world. It's all those things. You know, we have our own Jerusalem right here around the church, and then we've got this spread out. You know, Mackinac City is the uttermost. <laughs> <laughs> Levering where the heathens are. <laughs> Just outside of the interstate. <laughs> so th this is this is our world, and we should fill it with the gospel. Knowing that there are people here who are going to be saved. This is one of the, one of the nice things about election, is when you go, if God has sent you there to preach the gospel, you know somebody there is going to be saved. Otherwise, He wouldn't have sent you there. He doesn't send you there to pronounce death. He sends you there to bring life, and you preach the gospel. So, the blessings are made free to all through the gospel. Now, this confession is 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 carefully worded to say that it's not a person's lack of election. It's their cause for not believing the gospel. It's their own depravity, and, th and this and this is and this is worded carefully to avoid being accused of of double predestination. Double predestination means that there are some people are chosen for heaven. 
and some are chosen for hell. And if you if you talk to people about predestination, this is what they'll say. Well, if God didn't choose them to heaven, then he chose he chose the rest for hell. Because they say that's the implication. I want these, I don't want these. What's the fate of these who I don't choose? Perdition. So therefore, God chose them for perdition. You see how that argument works? But it's but it's not it's not it's not positive. It's not a positive choosing. Now the reformers would say reformers they say all kinds of stuff. John Bunyan, you guys know John Bunyan? Had made the blue ox. John and his cousin Paul. John Bunyan, he believed in double predestination. He believed in active, positive reprobation. My friend Don Fortner, <laughs> he preached at my church a sermon. Reprobation, positive and asserted. <laughs> Chosen for hell, you know. That kind, of, that, that kind of sermon would set you back on your heels, wouldn't it? Woo! Don Fortner, he said, the most, the wickedest doctrine ever taught amongst in the world was general atonement. If Christ tasted death for every man, then Christ is a liar, you know, and the cross doesn't work. So it's very, Don, Don was a man. He preached a sermon one time called uh, uh, A Plea for Dogmatism. <laughs> he said, I'm tired of you preachers, you know, not being clear. Yeah, so anyway, that, that, that was Don, though. So this says that the thing that keeps you from being saved, or keeps a person from being saved, is not whether or not they're elect. That's not our business. You're not supposed to be sitting at your house going, am I elect or not? But there are people who teach that. It's called, it's called preparationism. Now, a lot of, no, my friends, you'll run into a lot of Calvinists, especially getting into reform circles. A lot of them who say that they are not preparationist, but they are. They are. And you can spot them. You can always spot the spot spot the you can always spot the hints of it because they start talking about all the things that have to be present before you believe. You have to feel this way. You have to feel a certain sorrow. They'll go through the whole list. And all these things are prerequisite to faith. When you feel these, now you can believe. And, and this is this is not this is not the way it works. You're saying that's uh, reformed doctrine? Yeah, preparationism. If you want to pick up Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ. That's what it's about. It's about refuting that, refuting preparationism, because it's it it crept in to the the Scottish the Scottish Presbyterian churches. Because what what do people always do? They always overcorrect. They always tighten it up. They always tighten it up. So you know we got nine eleven. The Arabs come and they blow us all and they blow us the kingdom come. What 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 kind of security measures they put in place all over the place all all over the country? It's just, it's all overcorrect. You know, it's just, 
people just get nuts. And it's in theology, it's everywhere, it's, it's, it's human nature. The thing that keeps a person from coming to faith is not their election, it's their depravity. When you preach the gospel to a person, they say, I don't want it. That's, that's the depraved nature. They're in bondage to their nature. This is what regeneration is saying. Regeneration is the thing that gives to us the new mind, the new understanding, the new desire, the new appetite. It quickens it. It's kind of like a, I don't know, I don't know how to describe that. I'm just going to stop. Nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own inherent depravity. So, just for, just for to bring scripture to bear for a second. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1. Ephesians 2, 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, if you have the NIV or the ESV, it probably doesn't say that. What does it, it say in the ESV there, Denise? You were dead in trespasses and sins. No. Yeah, in the authorized version, Hath he quickened is italicized. It's inserted. But I'll, I'll read it to you. You tell me if you, when you get down, I think, I think regeneration appears in verse 2 or 3. 2 1. And you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins, wherein time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had all our conversations in times past, and the loss of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love with he loved us, even when we even when we were dead in sins, and made us alive, quickened us, quickened us alive. So this is your, this is what you are. You're dead in sins, and you had to be quickened. Now, be cautious about this. I'm not going to talk about this. It's, it's a waste of time. So, when you're dead, to be dead in sins, it doesn't mean you can't think, move, feel, talk, or act, or make decisions. It just means that you're in a status with God that you can't fix. You're in a status with God that you can't fix. Nothing you can do can change the status. It's <laughs> not, not again. The only thing that can change your status with God of being dead to Him is if He gives you life. So in John 11, Lazarus is in the tomb. Jesus comes. Who can change Lazarus' status with God? Can Mary do it? Can Martha do it? Can the crying crowd do it? Can Lazarus do it? Only one person can do it. Who is that? It's Jesus. Jesus changes his status. He says, Lazarus come forth. Lazarus comes forth. Now, justification. Number 12. Justification. But you missed something. Right, and that, and that, and that's the, that's the, uh, depravity is rejection. I, I that yeah, and that's, depravity, that's why you reject, and it's voluntary, it's something you want to do. Now, the last phrase here, these last two words of letter E, voluntary rejection, which rejection, which, which rejection involved him in aggravated condemnation. Now, this is a striking I, I used this, I spent a long time uh, not believing in degrees of suffering in hell. I used to say no degrees in hell. You know, hell is hell. But 
um, this, 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 this phrase is for that is for the kind of aggravated connotation. So you who sit in the Baptist church and hear the gospel preached Sunday after Sunday, and you say, no, thanks, no, thanks, no, thanks. You have a greater condemnation than, than, you know, yeah, who's just sitting out there worshiping on a stump. He's going to go to hell too, but not. I think that's what MacArthur thought. I mean, he used the reason that Jesus started teaching in parables was so that the Pharisees who rejected him would not have a greater condemnation. And he kind of almost looked like a type of grace to perverse hmm. and spared them from that. That's because interesting. Yeah. Nine where he says right. they will yeah. never hear. They yes. never hear God. That's interesting. It just seems. Yeah. Yeah. He seemed to teach that in this parable. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't read his stuff on the parables. But I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Degrees of hell is kind of a common thing nowadays. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably always has been because you say that, you know, some kid in Michigan who goes to hell, you know, for when he dies, will not have face the same torments as Hitler. Hitler is always a great example, right, of the worst possible scenario. Different degrees of punishment. Uh, and that's probably true, I think. I, and I think it's true because of the judgments at the end of Revelation. You're just specifically for your works. So you think that word aggravated condemnation was chosen to talk about the I do. I do. In fact, there's there's a lot of talk about this confession has been talked about a lot. Because that statement, aggravated condemnation, it's in the it's in the original. In the original Hanshaw confession too. Okay. And I think that's what it's about. Um, justification. Short bit for it. We know what justification is probably already. And uh, the great gospel blessing which Christ secures to such as believe in him is justification. Justification includes the pardon of sin, the gift of eternal life on principles of righteousness. It is bestowed not in consideration of any works of righteousness we have done, but solely through faith in the Redeemer's blood. His righteousness is imputed to us. So this is that alien righteousness, something we don't possess, that's being brought to us through faith in Christ. Now, it says here, the great, we believe the great gospel blessing. Now, justification. I don't want to erase this. Justification is salvation. If you're justified, you're saved. Justification is the greatest thing you possess right now. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're justified before God. You've been given the very righteousness of Christ. It's been imputed to you, reckoned to you, accounted to you. If you guys have the NIV, you can look at Romans 4, where it says it's credited to you. Credited. Authorized version says imputed or reckoned. ESV says counted to you. It's an account. It's reckoned to you. It's a deposit in your account. And it's a permanent deposit. It's a deposit that can never be depleted. It's yours forever. And justification is the only thing that you can possess now in this life and never lose. It's the only thing you cannot lose. Because you can lose your health. You can lose your money. You can lose your house. You can lose your kids. You can lose your wife. You can lose your way. You can lose your mind. But if you've been justified, you cannot lose that. It's yours forever. Now this Im imputed, I like the word imputed, because in the Old Testament, the word, the way it's used, imputed, and uh, I said this Monday, but I, but I can't remember if it's, if it's true or not, because 
been a long time since I looked at it. But the the word impute in the Old Testament has has the idea of being stitched to. It's yours. It's been imputed. It's yours forever. Have you ever done something, got yourself a bad reputation? You ever done something and got yourself a bad reputation for it? You're kind of known, <laughs> and you can't really get away from it. It kind of just lingers on and on and on. It's sewed to you. <laughs> you do anything to get rid of it. Justification is the same thing. It's stitched to you. It's yours. And you got it to the end. You got it to the end. All the way through. Justified. And this is what this is what and this is what separates us from from other churches sometimes is our view of security. It's a view of security. Secured in Christ, by Christ, the whole nine yards. And it's bestowed. The confession is careful to say. Bestowed, not in consideration of any works of righteousness we have done. It's not bestowed in consideration. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. I'll look at a couple of verses and then we'll, in that regard. Let's look at uh, Titus 3, 5 through 7. These are my mother, my mother's life's verses. You guys have a life's verse? Have you guys ever done that? So I chose a verse that kind of is like your slogan or your maxim for life. You got, what is it, these? Never know I would. Christ lives in me. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that was in the KJV, too. <laughs> <laughs> I can't not help it. <laughs> my mom's, this is my mom's. Titus 3, 5, 3, 7. I'll turn to Timothy. Titus 3. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he showed us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this is, uh, it's in Christ we have these things. And in Christ alone, through faith alone in him. Not, we're, not, we're not contributing anything to it. Not contributing anything to it. All right. Our time is up. Mr. Hayden.